Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Good evening and welcome to The Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, whoever coined the phrase, may you live in interesting times, didn't envisage times like these. The phrase was, of course, intended ironically, given that interesting times are usually characterised by instability, destitution and war. They might be interesting, but that isn't much consolation if you're displaced by a complete societal breakdown or killed by enemy troops invading your neighbourhood. Thankfully, there are signs that the times that we live in can't even do that. Firstly, there's this. The United States Navy, which is struggling to recruit new sailors, has turned to yeoman second class Joshua Kelly, who is a sailor by day and a drag queen by night, to encourage more young men and women to sign up and potentially lay down their lives to defend truth, justice and the American way. Only the geniuses at the Navy's recruitment office have decided that the truth, justice and lifestyle these recruits will defend is centred on the freedom of men to wear women's clothes. Was this in the fine print when when Prime Minister Anthony Albanese signed the $368 billion AUKUS military alliance in San Diego two months ago. That in the event of a war in the Pacific, Aussie sailors would be fighting alongside Americans who were recruited because they wanted to be locked up in a submarine with men who wear dresses. Some of the online commentary about this focuses on the fact that America's enemies are now laughing at them. Well, maybe they are. Or maybe we should be laughing at them. Check this new development from the increasingly comical world of international military conflict. It's footage of what the Kremlin calls an assassination attempt on President Vladimir Putin by Ukrainian agents in Moscow last night. In the age of precision strikes, high-tech weaponry, and even the assassination of former KGB spies using tea laced with polonium, as Russia did with Alexander Litvinenko in, in London in 2006, we are expected to believe that this is a serious attempt on the life of the Russian president. If the first casualty of war is the truth, 
Then the second casualty is the technological prowess of assassins. Ukraine has responded by saying they aren't interested in fighting anywhere except on the territorial battlefield, which would be believable if they hadn't accidentally bombed Poland last year, blamed it on Russia and told the West to launch nukes to teach Russia a lesson. The only way we can hope to understand this drone hitting the roof of the Kremlin is to work out who might have benefited from it. It's difficult to believe Ukraine would launch such an inept attack. So that only leaves Russia. Could it be that Putin wants, to, wants a reason to escalate? This might not be true given that Russia has already lost maybe 200,000 young men in this conflict. Perhaps Putin wants to use it as evidence that things are getting out of hand and he needs the US or China to step in and break it up. Well, we can only hope that is true. Surely all of us, including us Australian taxpayers who have invested heavily in this proxy war, are now looking for a dignified exit from the quagmire. Meanwhile, in New South Wales, new Labor Premier Chris Minns and his friend Ben Franklin, who is, who is ostensibly a member of the Nationals' opposition, are trying to metaphorically do to Parliament House on Macquarie Street what that drone failed to do on the Kremlin. Both Houses of Parliament are delicately balanced, so Minns is understandably looking for any way to manipulate the numbers in his favour. Yesterday, he offered Franklin the presidency of the Upper House, which comes with the same lucrative perks as a ministership. The deal would presumably require Franklin to support the government's legislation against the wishes of his own party. It's difficult to imagine a more cynical distortion of democracy. It's been described by one anonymous member of Franklin's party as treachery, and there are threats to expel him if he accepts the offer. Franklin hasn't said whether he will yet. But you have to say, the Nationals only have themselves to blame. They are increasingly a party of politicians who stand for nothing except maintaining a cushy career in Parliament. Franklin's own party profile says he is, quote, passionate about working with residents and groups to achieve strong outcomes for the community and making sure they have access to employment, cultural and educational opportunities." Unquote. His profile says nothing about individuality, responsibility, family, religion, small government or, heaven forbid, fighting against the forces that are trying to destroy the freedom upon which Australia was founded. He's just another cardboard cutout of a politician, offering platitudes that should, that should the need ever arise are vague enough to comfortably apply to the other side of politics instead. But thankfully, there are still some people who are prepared to defy the xenophobic zeitgeist as my new colleague Mark Stein demonstrated last night. His guest was author and, and former media mogul Lord Conrad Black, who also once happened to be a friend 
of the late convicted sex offender and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein and his enabler, Ghislaine Maxwell, who's now doing 20 years for trafficking young girls. It's not often you hear anybody speak positively about that reviled couple, but here's Black doing just that. There's a chance you know better who this guy really was than most of the speculation in the newspapers. He was always a bit of a man of mystery to us too, Mark. I have to say, as far as we knew him, he was a very nice man. And as far as we knew, they were an attractive couple, he and Guillen. And uh, they were very nice to have dinner with, which we did a few times. And I, did, I never saw any young, I mean, young, young girls around. I was never actually in his house. We met, he came to my house a few times. I was in his house in New York, but not in Palm Beach. And um, he was clearly a very astute man, had a great deal of influence on my colleague, Leslie Wexner, who's a uh, director of ours and, and uh, you know, was one of the great retailers in the United States. And uh, we were astounded as these things came out. I mean, uh, it was not completely surprising to us that uh, between him and Guillen, they, they might have had an exotic private life. That, you know, that huh. wasn't surprising. But it's no one's business but theirs if that's all it is. If that's all it is, it probably wasn't. But anyway, for the full conversation, which segues neatly into a fascinating discussion about corruption in the American legal system, of which Mark and Conrad both have considerable experience, go to Mark's page on the ADH website or app. Now, speaking of the legal system, new Victorian Liberal MP Moira Deeming today threatened to sue her leader, John Pesuto, over accusations she associated with Nazis at a rally for women's rights in Melbourne on March 18. A gang of Nazis crashed the rally, which prompted Pesuto to say, quote, I will never, ever accept any member of the Parliamentary Liberal Party under my leadership ever associating with anybody who shares a platform with people who peddle hate, division and attack people for who they are. Only problem is, that's not how Deeming recalls the event. Here she is on this show two weeks ago, explaining how things unfolded from where she was standing. You know, I had I had seen that one Nazi salute as the group was being taken out. I initially had thought they were Antifa. People know that now. Um, but on the Sunday night, I didn't know what had happened. Um, and I had to go back and look at the footage because it was so confusing. And I was worried I, and I was terrified. I thought, oh, what if I should have seen these people? How did I not see them? How come everyone else knows who they are and I don't? Um, yeah, but it was really helpful to see all the footage and the photos. They were very, very far away from us. Uh, when I saw them, I couldn't see the sign. There was no Nazi insignia anyway. And, and, and when they did the salute on the steps, they, they were behind a really big pole, um, which explained why I didn't even see that. And that was the only time that they were close by. So I could only put it together later on with the footage. As if the Liberal Party needed any more problems. Meanwhile, Labor is in power from coast to coast and wreaking havoc with absolute impunity. If we don't watch out, we mind, might wind up living in interesting times after all. 
One of the most lucid commentators about all this is Dan Wild, the Deputy Executor, Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. And he joins me now. Dan, welcome. Great to be with you. Dan, first, one of Labor's signature policies at the moment is to flood the nation with immigrants. There's going to be 400,000 of them this financial year alone. Why do you think Labor is doing this and what effect will it have on the people who already live here? Well, that's right. There's a fairly significant expansion to the migration program, which is planned over the next two years. And look, a lot of Australians in the community are concerned about what this is going to mean uh, in terms of our capacity to manage it from an infrastructure perspective, from schools, roads, hospitals and housing. You know, as we know, we've got a housing shortage at the moment. Rental prices are going up uh, very rapidly. So, uh, you know, in the absence of more infrastructure, this is going to exacerbate those challenges and put upward pressure on prices and inflation. So, look, a lot of Australians are saying that, yes, you know, we're a very welcoming and tolerant nation and migrants have and will continue to play a critical role in our social and economic life. But what we really need is our governments to be focused on getting the infrastructure settings right and focused on getting Australians into jobs first, getting those policy settings right uh, before we look abroad to, to bring in uh, greater population numbers. This is going to hurt people at the bottom the most. Labor's meant to be the party of the working people. I still can't understand why they're doing it, Dan. Well, it's a good question as to why they're, they're doing it. It seems the migration review was rushed and ill-considered in terms of uh, not taking a holistic view of the challenges. Uh, you're quite right. The uh, extra competition that will take place in Australia for local jobs could have a negative effect at those at the bottom of the income ladder. Uh, we know, you know, from economics, if you increase the, you know, the supply of something, the price will go down and, you know, the labour market is, is no different in that regard. So, yeah, you're right. It shows that the Labor Party, you know, for many years has been moving away from being a, a party representing the interests of workers. Uh, for many, many years, Labor was often the party that was more so likely to be in favour of a... Um, you know, a, a, a smaller, more targeted migration program. But over recent years, they've very much become the party of, of uh, you know, big Australia and, and, you know, fairly rapid population growth. You know, again, I think that migration can play an important role. But my concern here is that the government just isn't planning for this in, in the proper way. Well, the best, the most emblematic microcosm of this is housing, I think. The, the housing problem is, of course, created in the first place by the government. I mean, Australia is a nation of tradies and we have, as our national anthem says, boundless planes to share, but we aren't building houses because governments keep getting in the way. Now, having created the problem, the government is offering itself as the solution by encouraging a boom in two new categories of housing called build to rent and affordable housing. Now, these are a, a radical departure from the Australian dream, aren't they, Dan? Yeah, they are. It's a pretty critical point, Fred. Um, you know, the first point is in terms of all the cost government piles on. Something like one third of the cost of building a house is red tape and tax and various other charges. So immediately that's another you know, one, two, three hundred grand on, on your house, on your mortgage before you even get going. Uh, but you're right, more broadly, it's a cultural problem. Australia, you know, in the post-World War II era was built on home ownership. That was the basis of a prosperous middle class. It's a basis of our egalitarianism that, you know, everybody provided that you've got a job, you'll be able to own a home. And um, that's, that's been the basis of the Australian way of life. It's made our nation relatively unique. And it's also been, you know, a, a source of upward mobility. You know, if you own your own home, uh, you have a stake in your community, you have a stake in your nation's future. 
um, is the absolute glue and the fabric of a of a democratic nation like Australia's. So this build to rent uh, move where basically these big investment banks buy up massive apartment blocks and rent them out where people aren't able to buy those themselves, it's a huge concern and it's it's really is a, I think, an existential threat to our egalitarian way of life. Yeah, and as Labor colluding with the big end of town um, and pretending that they're solving the problem when they're not. Now let's talk about work because uh, we seem to have a worker shortage these days. Won't, I mean, isn't there, a, isn't there a, a silver lining on this cloud that these migrants will at least fill some of the vacant jobs in Australia at the moment? Yeah, look, they will to an extent. Uh, there's a massive job shortage. There's about 450,000 job vacancies across the country. That's about double what it was pre-COVID. Um, and about one in four businesses can't get the workers they need. So if you're walking down your, you know, your local shops, uh, you go past the chemist, the butcher, the supermarket, the cafe, the pub, you know, one in four of those shops or, um, you know, uh, cafes that you go past, they can't get enough workers. They can't find the people they need to get the job done. Uh, and that's putting upward pressure on prices and causing delays and so forth. So there is a big job shortage. But we have a solution right in front of us, uh, which is uh, pensioners, veterans and students. I mean, if we just look at pensioners, they face enormous financial disincentives and red tape from working. Um, if you earn just $226 a week as a pensioner, thereafter, you're taxed at 50 cents on the dollar in terms of losing your, your welfare payments. So only three out of 100 pensioners in Australia work compared to 25% in New Zealand, which doesn't have the same barriers over there. So government, uh, again, has missed an opportunity. Yes, you know, migration can fill some of the, the skill shortages, but we need to be looking closer to home and removing these barriers to our own uh, people getting the jobs uh, you know, where that's appropriate. Well, let's talk about the what used to be the opposition. We call it the Liberal Party. I had a former grassroots member of the Liberal Party on the show last week talking about why he and others have had enough of the factionalism in the party. Now, you and I and our viewers know how much damage our coast-to-coast -coast Labor governments are causing the country at the moment, but they are getting away with it because the Liberals and Nationals are in disarray. Dan, what do you think can be done about this? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think firstly, at the federal level, they're starting to take up the fight a little bit. We've seen some good moves uh, opposing the voice to parliament at the Liberal, both the federal Liberal and national parties have a clear view on that, which means there'll be a debate on that. So I think that there's uh, you know some positive developments uh, at the federal level. At the state level, it, it is still in, in very much uh, you know lacking that kind of leadership. Um, I think that the, the Labor governments, certainly at the federal level, are very vulnerable. Um, Albanese is much more like Whitlam than he is like Hawke. Uh, Whitlam was a very sectional type figure. Um, he was personally popular for a while, but his government was never that popular. Remember, Whitlam only won by a few seats. Uh, and then three years later, he was gone. Um, and then they had another eight years of coalition rule. I think Albanese is very vulnerable. If you look at what he's pushing, the voice, a republic, uh, you know, the migration that we've talked about, um, various other economic policies. These are fairly radical changes to our way of life that most Australians don't want and that most Australians didn't vote for, even those who did vote for Labor. Many of them do not want these kind of policies in place. So, look, I think that there's a big opportunity politically at the national level, um, you know, and, and, you know, as we sort of see this develop, I, you know, hope there's more of a debate on these issues. Well, the way things are at the moment, if Albo is the new Gough Whitlam, the only way we're going to get rid of him is if we have another Sir John Kerr. But anyway, let us talk about the last time that the, the, the Liberals had a landslide win 
was Tony Abbott's federal win in 2013. Why can't the coalition just strive to repeat that? Well, I think they can. I think it's doable. Uh, why, did, why did Abbott win? He won because he had a very clear message, uh, carbon tax, mining tax, and a government that was in disarray. Uh, and Abbott provided the leadership to communicate these issues day in, day out. I think that the Albanese government is very similar. They've got a lot of policy deficiencies. Albanese personally might be popular, but I don't know if people really respect him as a leader as such. They might like him, but do they think he can get the job done and, and to provide leadership? Well, I mean, that's an open question. So I think the, the Liberals can can win. There's a lot of negativity saying, well, Labor's easily going to win in 2025. I don't think that's the case. Uh, but what has to happen is that there needs to be a clear policy agenda from the coalition that appeals to working class, lower income Australians in the outer suburbs of, of particularly in the sort of western suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne that are sort of Labor voters, but they will vote Liberal if they have the right set of policies. Uh, we've been talking about those, basically, you know, issues of population growth, uh, having good family, you know, policies that benefit the family, uh, and also policies uh, that are going uh, to enable the, the growth of small, small business and, and uh, home ownership. You know, these are really the key things that appeal to a lot of Australians. So I think that kind of policy agenda means that, uh, you know, 2025 is up for grabs. Yeah, well, the, I think the the area that is most fertile for, uh, for, for um, well, kicking good goals, to mix the metaphors, kicking easy goals, is the transition to renewables. Because, I mean, the coalition, I mean, they are conspicuously quiet on this topic. But today, Paul Broad, the former CEO of Snowy 2.0, told 2GB Radio, he said, quote, the notion that we can have 80% renewables by 2030 is, and you'll have to pardon my French here, bullshit. Now, Energy Minister Chris Bowen's new plan to force us all into electric vehicles is equally deluded. Dan, why won't the Liberals and the Nationals go after them on this topic? Oh, look, I mean, that's a good question. Um, there's a big issue here. What Labor is doing with renewables is, is not going to work. And we're already seeing that. Prices are at record highs. We've got supply vulnerabilities, yet they're still persisting with things like a, a cap on gas prices, despite, you know, chief government bodies like the Australian energy market operator clearly saying we need more gas, not less gas on our East Coast market. So I agree there's a huge, um, a huge vulnerability and opportunity there for the coalition. And, um, you know, we have seen a discussion about nuclear. Ted O'Brien, as the relevant minister, has been talking about that. I think we need a bit more and, and to have a concrete policy, but they are moving in that direction. Uh, but, look, I, I agree. I think that the, the case needs to be made that the policy of net zero, which is causing the decommissioning of baseload power, is what is behind this uh, supply shortfall and price rises, which is damaging lower income working class Australians the most. There's a clear opportunity here. And look, I agree that they, the coalition, um, you know, should be entering this debate in a more direct manner. Yeah, well, I hope they do it soon. Dan Wild, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Institute of Public Affairs Deputy Executive Director Dan Wild saying what Liberal MPs across the country should be saying, but mysteriously won't. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. Save the Nation with the mellifluous Professor David Flint is up next at 8pm. And as I said, the great Mark Stein, the most entertaining conservative commentator in the world, is now on ADH. 
You can find him and all our other stars like Alan Jones, Damien Curry, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton and more by going to adh.tv or downloading our app. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. Tomorrow, my special guest is the wonderful Calvin Robinson, a deacon of the Free Church of England, who will tell me whether artificial intelligence, which can do almost anything these days, can ever emulate human spirituality. You won't want to miss that. That's tomorrow at seven o'clock. Good night.